1: So we went to Las Vegas, as I've shared in the past. We were there last month, actually in April, and I was there for two days, did two live shows at KKVV, and then after that we came back and started praying and asking God, okay, what do you want to do now? Uh, what, is there a next step here? And after spending time praying and talking to our team, what we're going to do is we're going back. And we're going to do a bit of a campaign. So from July 23rd to August 19th, we're going to be running a billboard campaign there in the city of Las Vegas. That will sh- This will show on 12 different billboards, and it will say, struggling with porn, you're not alone, so are 65% of the men in church. And this will run from July 23rd to August 19th, so about a month. And then August 1st to the 7th, I will be doing seven straight live radio shows on KKVV, Monday through Friday. It will air at 3 o'clock, and the shows will be both live streamed, and if you're in Vegas, you'll be able to hear it, the broadcast, or you can even listen to it on KKVV's website. Saturday night at six will be the next show. That one actually will be pre-recorded and then Sunday morning, August seventh at ten AM will be the final show. That'll be an hour, and then it will be more or less what might you might hear in a Sunday morning service from me talking about porn and sex addiction in the church and and so pray, please. We need prayer for this because um, there was a lot of spiritual warfare just in the several days we were there in April, so you don 't walk into an arena like this where there's so mu- the enemy has so much ground in the sexual arena without knowing that there you know could very well be a very intense spiritual battle at some point, so we need prayer for this. but more than just for praying for us, please also pray for a harvest. Please pray that God would use these the billboards are seeds the way I see it. So pray that these seeds would bring fruit. Pray that this time there would bring fruit. The sexually broken would be reached. The church would be encouraged to be houses of prayer to talk openly about sexual topics. So, and then we have a uh, page on this up on the website of blazinggrace.org so you can find out more about it. So today I'm talking. I'm going to talk about sexual abuse. It is one of the most traumatic crimes against the heart that a man or woman could go through. It is traumatic. It is, is, I call it rape of the soul. And I've been through it myself. And I'm going to share my story in a moment. But first, the, the numbers show that one out of four women at some point in their life have been sexually molested. And for the men, it's one in six. And those numbers may even increase since the last time I've seen them. And Naomi Judd has been in the news recently where at the age of 76, she took her life. She ended it uh, with a gun, committed suicide. And I'm going to read here from a news article where her daughter, Ashley Judd, was being interviewed, and Ashley Judd spoke tearfully with Diane Sawyer with Good Morning America as she shared details of her mother's April 30th death. One day before the 76-year-old musician Naomi and her elder daughter Winona were to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. So that was going to be a big, big night for her, and she killed herself one day before that. And then Ashley says, "Our mother couldn't hang on to be recognized by her peers. That is the level of catastrophe of what was going on inside of her, because the barrier between the regard in which they held her could not penetrate into her heart and the lie that the disease told her was, that was so convincing. The lie Ashley explained was her mother's thoughts that you're not enough, you're not loved." You're not worthy. And Ashley continues, her brain hurt. It physically hurt, she said. So these lies, I'm going to come back to in a little bit. This is a a key part. And then from another interview from ET Canada, they write, At the age of 18, Naomi Jed welcomed her first daughter, Winona, after being date-raped by a football player the night before her senior year of high school. I got pregnant the very first time I had sex, recalls Naomi. Three months later, when I called him to tell him to say I thought I was pregnant, my boyfriend said, well, tough luck, kiddo, and he hung up the phone and we never heard from him again. Naomi Judd experienced another horror story of sexual abuse at the age of 22 when she was beaten and raped by her drug-addicted ex-boyfriend after he broke into her home. Naomi says, he slapped me across the face. He tortured me and he beat me and then he raped me and then he took a shot of heroin. And when he took a second dose of heroin, he passed out. So then I took the girls, my daughters, and went to the sheriff's station. Sexual abuse, rape, this type of thing is traumatic to the soul. And and I know from personal experience, and as I was preparing for this the show, it, it hit me all over again. And, it, you know, sometimes I think, you know, it's been a long time. I mean, I was 14 years old when this happened, but some things, I mean, I've healed a lot, but some things, some wounds are so traumatic that there's still a piece of it there. And it's that same way for me. And so at the age of 14, I was, I stayed home sick from school one day, and an adult, female member of our family, I'm not going to go into more detail than that, but you could probably read between the lines, walked into my bedroom and molested me. And when that happened, my mind snapped. My mind just said, this could not be real. (laughs) There is no way that this person, this adult relative, family relative, could do this, and it took the memory and it shuddered it back into the recesses of my mind, and it—I totally blanked at that point and forgot about it. But uh, we cannot stuff trauma without it leaking out, and I didn't know what was going on, and understand what I was doing. But from that moment on, everything about me started changing. I pushed all of my friends away. Uh, friends I'd had for years. I just started, I started pushing away at, at high school at that time. I didn't know why. I just I didn't want them anywhere around me. I didn't want anyone getting close to me. And I started hanging around with a totally new set of friends, the ones back then who were, quote, unquote, you know the outcasts, the kids who were doing drugs. And those are the ones I started hanging out with. And then suicidal thoughts started running through my mind. Um, it And I, you know, I, I was young. I had no idea what I was doing or why I was doing it. And I just knew I felt this deep sense of hopelessness. And I felt dirty all the time. I, I couldn't explain it. I just felt dirty and soiled and I was disgusted with myself and I hated myself and I hated the way I felt and... So as I mentioned, I became suicidal. I drank some radiator fluid one day, but I didn't drink enough. And there was another time. I think maybe I was around sixteen. No, I mean I was eighteen. I was. I remember holding a three fifty seven magnum and trying to get the courage to. To finish the act to uh, to commit suicide and, but. Fortunately, at the time, I think, if I remember right, somebody called me when I was thinking about doing that, and I was at a real low point, and, and um, I didn't tell them what I was thinking about doing, but they just talked to me. And, and so I, I set that down, thankfully, and, and I had a big problem with anger, and I didn't know why. And um, I left home as soon as I could at the age of 18, and I remember this female— family adult member coming to me after I'd gotten into a car accident and trying to hug me and I snapped at her and I said don't touch me and I didn't want her I didn't want her to have anything to do with me so um, so this went on and I threw myself into sex drugs and rock and roll threw myself into porn pornography and masturbation daily binges of porn and you know at the time I didn't know it but I was looking for some kind of comfort or or to feel good or to set aside The misery inside. I was depressed a lot and angry a lot. I had walked. I was brought up in a Christian home, but I uh, walked away from God right around that time. That was that age of fourteen, because I figured at some level, well, if this is what the Christian life is about, you know, family members doing that to you, well, I want nothing to do about nothing to do with it. And then, uh, so after several years of that. By the time I'm into my late 20s, a lot of drugs, LSD, cocaine, marijuana, other things, about anything you could not, that did not involve a needle, I was doing. Alcohol, I I remember getting so drunk one night I slept in my vomit. So by the time I'm in, in my early 20s, around 22, 23, I was just miserable and started fumbling my way back to God, stopped dating girls who weren't Christians. But I knew I was a mess and need help, and I looked in a newspaper, and I found a woman who was a Christian counselor. I don't know why I t- picked a woman, but it was I can see today it was God's hand. So I think it was a second, my second meeting with her, she looks at me and she goes, you hate women, don't you? And I was just stunned when she asked that question. I had not told her about my porn or my lust or my sex problems. I And to this point, I had had sex with prostitutes, gone to stripper bars and one-night stands. And so I had told her none of that. So when she says this, that I hate women, I'm thinking, um, I got a really big problem with lust for women. How could it be that I hate them? But um, she kept poking and prodding and asking questions and, and maybe a month or two later um something happened and all of a sudden that memory of being molested just sprang out of my mind full force and um when that happened it was just like i could i coming to grips with that was just i don't know how i, I couldn't it, I, and then i would bounce between rage and then I crash into depression and, and this went on for a while and and uh, I, I didn't know what to do with these my my, my, my emotions and she kind of helped me a little bit on expressing my feelings and trying to get it out and I just go into this place of fury one moment and wanting to just start throwing punches and one and I'd be so low that I wanted to start crying my eyes out and Thankfully, the suicidal stuff had passed in, in, in the years prior, but um, I, I was a mess. And then, of course, you know what the um, what they what doctors do is they have to give you a diagnosis. So they decided I was bipolar, and this was sometime in the nineteen eighties. You know, because quote unquote, I'm manic, right? I'm angry and I'm crying, and so I must be bipolar. They try giving me some medication that didn't help and but today what i will tell you is i wasn't bipolar i was enraged that this family member had molested me and and basically ripped into my soul and then i would crash because it was painful so this went on and and i saw her for a little while and uh didn't really, I kind of, I don't know, took the edge off a little bit talking to her about it, but I never really quite healed. And then in 1995, we moved from Southern California to Colorado, and I was still a mess. I was married at this point. I got married in 1989, and and oh my gosh, when you have a spouse who gets married, and they've got all this anger and rage and depression and and unresolved trauma inside of him. What do you think happens in the marriage? Well, it wasn't good. And there'd be times Michelle would say something to me and I would take it the wrong way because I'm acting out of my pain and I would just blow up and then I would think later, why did I get so angry over that? And something's not right here. And So fast forward to 1997. So this is, um, I'd been molested at the age of 14. In 1997, I was... Closing in at around 35 years old, been going this through this a long time, 20 years, and I start meeting with the counselor, Christian guy. It turns out he's molested. He had been molested as a priest, and he asked me a question nobody else had. He said, "Did did you forgive this person that did this to you?" And I, I just had this blank look, like I don't. know. I, I never even thought of that before. So, um. I wrote her a letter. He, she lived in a different state by then. And I hadn't talked to her in years. And, and um, I said, just a very short letter. You did this to me, and I didn't go into detail. I just said, you did this to me, and I forgive you, and that was it. It was like a two-paragraph letter. As soon as I mailed that, all the anger evaporated. It just vanished. That was connected to that event. And then I finally had peace. And then two weeks later, she writes me a letter back, and she says, Well, did that make you feel better? So there was absolutely no acknowledgement. And so what I've learned through that is there are times when we have to forgive somebody who has wounded us, even abused us, and they will never, ever come back and ask for forgiveness. And then you have to choose, am I going to go back to a life of bitterness and hold on to that garbage and that poison, or am I going to walk free and I'm going to— continued to release what they did to me in forgiveness. So I didn't want to go back to business, so I just, I just let it go. And I know that the chances are high that there are some of you listening to this and you have been horribly molested, maybe somewhere in between what happened to Naomi where she was raped and, and me where I was molested. and So I want to leave you with a few points. The spiritual battle is intense for people who have gone through this. The enemy does not play fair. So what he does is he comes in, and remember what I, what I read in the very beginning about the lies? Ashley Judd said her mom was hooked on. The enemy comes in, and he plants those lies in the wound, and he embeds them there. So the stuff she was going through, you're not enough. Um I'm trying to find it. You're not worthy. You're not loved. All those wounds, he embeds, I mean, wounds, lies, he embeds in the wound, and then he attacks mercilessly and continuously. So until those lies are exposed, that person can stay in bondage well, all their life if they're not dealt with. And when I read this, what Naomi did, I just thought, oh, man, I wish I could have helped her or at least tried to help her because what I know is that we have to Take the time to get to know people and we don't just start throwing Bible verses at her, at them. We need to get to know them and with the Holy Spirit's help, have those lies that they're hooked on, exposed, and then show them how to break the power of them and then live in the truth. So it's not enough just—that's why just throwing the truth to people have been abused is not enough. We got to take the time to help walk with them with, how, with where they've been wounded and then, um, so the, int- the spiritual battle is intense. So this is not just about helping them heal emotionally, although it's a critical part. We have to equip them to be warriors and give them an understanding of what has been thrown at them. And so a part of this is how it's affected them chemically. A part is how it's affected them emotionally. With all that trauma and damage, it's like a wrecking ball to the, wrecking ball to the soul. And then there's the intense spiritual battle. So, this is an issue. I really believe we need to bring up from the pulpit. We can't just ignore this when so many people are their lives are being destroyed, and um, suicide is becoming more and more of a prevalent problem. And as I shared with you, when I was going through that, and when I was 14, I was dangerously close to killing myself. I mean, I was I was right there at the doorstep. So. If if you come in contact with someone who takes a risk and shares with you what they've been through, hear me out here. The best thing you can do is listen. Do not try and fix them. Do not start preaching at them. That's some of the worst stuff you can do because all you're doing is now just barfing up your... Um, what you think is going to fix them, and it's not. This is, this is a term, this is going to take some time for them to heal. The best thing you can do is listen and say, and then ask a question. How can I help you? How can I help you heal? I'm going to pray for you. Just doing those things can make a big, big difference. In James 1, where we told, let everybody be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Listening is a great way to minister to people. And and we have to equip them for warfare. And we have to realize that emotional healing in this area takes time. And then as you heard me with my own story, at some point they're going to have to forgive those who have hurt them. And we do not go from zero to forgiveness in three seconds. That is a big mistake. I remember reading in a book somebody read years ago. 20 years ago, I remember reading it. Some, It was a Christian guy in a Christian workbook, and he had one chapter, and you could tell he had not been abused, and his answer was, you just got to forgive, and that's it. So basically, your heart doesn't matter if you've been abused or been wounded. You just need to buck up and forgive and get over it. And so that, that's like walking up to somebody and slugging him in the face six or seven times and saying, now will you forgive me? I mean, uh, they need time to process that before they can come to that point, usually. But even the physical blows are nothing compared to the damage that sexual abuse inflicts on the heart when that person feels soiled They can't stand who they are. And even when you tell them God loves them, all they hear are those lies. And they can't stand that soiled, sick feeling. So it's so critical to realize that today there are a lot of people struggling with. When you say one out of four women have been molested, that's a huge amount of women in the church one out of six men have been, have been molested. That, that's still a lot of men who have gone through that trauma. It took me more than 22 years before I finally was able to really come to a place of forgiving and healing. And part of it is because nobody told me I needed to forgive. So I really want to, if you're in church leadership, I want to challenge you and encourage you. Please bring this up um, before your your flock because you're going to have plenty of people are hurting in this way. And if you're hurting and especially if you're com- if you're considering suicide, do not do that. There is hope. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons people commit suicide is because it all comes down to they lose hope. I'm not going to get over this. This depression is not going to leave me. I'm all alone in this deal. Where is my hope? And that and the enemy is going to pound you with that relentlessly. Do not ever give hope. Even if all your feelings are are screaming depression and nobody cares, do not give a hope. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just crawl forward one day, one moment at a time, and that's all you need. Just enough strength to make it through today and to reach out to somebody who will listen and who can help you. And then if you are struggling you want help, you know where we are. The contact information is at the end of this broadcast. So, my friends, let's not hide this stuff, but let's also be wise in helping people. Thank you for joining me. We'll see you next time.
0: Do you want to be free? Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling or to have mike speak at your organization you can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in chandler arizona at 719-888-5144 again visit us at blazinggrace.org email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144